Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from the E-edition of today's Cape Cod Times. And today's date is Wednesday, September 27th of 2023. We'll start with the weather, as we always do. Today, partly sunny. Chilly, though, compared to, uh, you know, what weather would normally be. 66 degrees and the expected high. Tonight, 53, the expected low with a moonlit sky. On Thursday, tomorrow, partly sunny, high of 67, low of 56. On Friday, there'll be periods of rain. Same on Saturday. Uh, Both days, mid-60s. Both days uh, for the highs. And in both days, high 50s for the lows. On Sunday, nice day, sunny, very nice, high of 70, low of 57. Sunrise today was at 6.33 a.m. It was nice. It will set at 6.30 p.m. We will have 11 hours, 57 minutes of daylight. And the moonrise, it will take place at 5.55 p.m. and set at 3.58 a.m. Let's go to the front of the paper where the lottery results, and of course the news, is kept. And we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030. 508-539-2030, and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org. In the upper right corner is the archived readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspapers and periodicals readings. And you can catch up on anything that you might have missed. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab. So we go to the MassLottery.com website to give you the latest lottery results. And for the numbers game of Tuesday, September 26th, in the midday drawing, the numbers were 1990. Again, yesterday's midday drawing, results 1990. In the evening drawing of Tuesday, September 26th, in the numbers game, the results were 8211. Again, last night's numbers game results, the evening drawing, 8211. Mass cash for Tuesday, September 26th, 6, 15, 20, 27, and 35. Mega millions for Tuesday, September 26th, 15, 30, 35, 42, and 60, with 16 the bonus number. And Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Tuesday, September 26th, 12, 14, 16, 32, and 33, with four, the bonus number. And that is all the results from Mass Lottery. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Back to the Cape Cod Times on the cover. Homelessness declared a state of emergency by tribe is the headline. Mashpee Wampanoag have, quote, extreme need for housing in the tribal community by Rachel Devaney in Mashpee. 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, Mashpee Wampanoag tribal officials noticed that homelessness was becoming more pervasive for tribal members, Brian Whedon, chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, said. In response, the tribe used American Rescue Plan Act money to purchase La Plaza del Sol in Mashpee for $1.9 million in October of 2022. The former 19-room motel property will eventually provide transitional housing and shelter to tribal members. But it's not enough, Whedon said Monday. That won't take care of the extreme need for housing in the tribal community. In the past year, homelessness among tribal citizens has been exacerbated by inflation, rising rents, and real estate costs, said Whedon. This is why the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Council voted unanimously Friday to enact a state of emergency due to a homeless crisis. We're hoping the state of emergency can help us to get more federal funds and grants to eventually structure our own tribal housing authority through the tribe's housing department, said Whedon. We want to expand our ability to provide assistance to our homeless tribal members. The state of emergency is effective immediately, and authorizes the Tribal Council to take all necessary action until they determine that the homeless crisis has been adequately remedied. Since 2019, the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe's Housing Department has been consistently supporting an average of 60 to 70 homeless tribal members per month, said Stephen Peters, spokesperson for the tribe. According to HUD, there were 582,000 homeless people on any given night in America in 2022. That's 18 per 10,000 people, Peters said. We have less than 2,000 tribal citizens living in our service area, and our housing department is receiving a large amount of requests from homeless tribal members. The statistics really put the crisis into perspective, Whedon said. A lot of tribal members are continued to be pushed out of their homelands, said Whedon. Everything is just more costly, even the value of land. Everything just keeps going up. Within the Declaration are a series of resolutions that were also approved by the Tribal Council. One of the most important is a pledge to collaborate with local, regional, state, and federal agencies and organizations to find viable solutions. The Cape Cod Commission, said Whedon, is a leading organization that continues to conduct listening sessions and surveys surrounding the housing crisis on Cape Cod. The tribe will take part in the commission's development of a regional housing production plan, he said, and will advocate for the inclusion of tribal preferences. Tribal officials will also be involved with the town of Mashpee's affordable housing and planned production plan. The plan's goals and objectives are based on the 1998 Comprehensive Plan and the results that emerged from the 2010 Comprehensive Plan Public Opinion Survey, according to the town of Mashpee's website. These groups are having talks about the housing issues here in the Commonwealth, and we plan to attend these kinds of meetings and advocate for tribally designated housing, Whedon said. The tribe will also explore the use of U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, HUD, funds, money that's currently available to the tribes at Whedon. By using HUD money, the state would be required by the federal government to designate housing units for tribal members, he said. The problem is that the state's saying, we can't do that because it's race-based, Whedon said. But the federal government says that even if the tribe uses $1 of HUD funds, the state would need to ensure there are housing preferences available to tribal citizens. Over the years, 
More Cape landowners are either donating their land to the tribe or want to sell their privately owned land to the tribe, Whedon said. Most recently, a woman approached tribal officials about buying a property she owned on Route 28 in Mashpee. She was worried, said Whedon, that a real estate investor would come in and knock it down and build condos. There are people out there who are actively thinking about the tribe and want to make sure that their land or their houses or units don't fall in the wrong hands, Whedon said. We are so grateful to all those people who are trying to help us. The next headline in today's Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, September 27th of 2023, Threat to Whales Cited in Wind Project Appeal by Chris Lisinski of the Statehouse News Service. A group of Nantucket residents opposed to an offshore wind installation that's nearing completion want another round in their long-running legal fight. The Nantucket Residents Against Turbines organization, which refers to itself as A-C-K-R-A-T-S, or ACRATS, late last week filed an appeal challenging a federal judge's ruling in May that effectively dismissed the group's prior complaint against the Vineyard Wind Project. Plaintiffs continue to argue that federal regulators, including the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, failed to consider risks the wind turbines posed to North Atlantic right whales, an endangered species with only a few hundred animals remaining in the wild. Citing the threat of vessel strikes and whales experiencing hearing loss from turbine pile driving and operations, the group alleges that allowing vineyard wind to proceed will push the whales closer to a watery grave. We've been asked to believe that the reviewing agencies use the best science available to them, but this couldn't be further from reality, Valerie Oliver, a plaintiff in the case, said in a statement provided by ACRATS. There is simply no valid excuse for using studies that support Vineyard Wind's project while completely failing to account for key data that show the opposite. We need to pump the brakes on this project and perform a better environmental review. ACRATS first challenged the project in 2021. U.S. District Court Judge Indira Talwani last year ruled against them, concluding that the residents' group failed to demonstrate that federal regulators fell short of their legal requirements during environmental review, according to the Martha's Vineyard Times. The group asked the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit to reconsider Talwani's decision. Vineyard Wind, which could become the first utility-scale offshore wind installation in the country, plans to begin generating clean power for Massachusetts next month, before ramping up to its full 800-megawatt operations. The plaintiffs say that the defendants, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, have 30 days to respond to the appeal submission. Our next headline from inside the paper, Yarmouth Police, Fire and Dive Teams, Rescue Driver from Submerged Car by Denise Coffey in West Yarmouth. First responders rescued the driver of a car Monday night that had submerged at the end of Bayview Street, according to Fire Chief Enrique Arascu. The fire department received a call reporting the submerged car at 10.37 p.m. When fire department personnel arrived, they found the car completely submerged with the driver inside, Arascu said. The car was too far and in water too deep for surface rescuers, according to a press release. The Barnstable County Dive Team and Yarmouth Division of Natural Resources workers were called, and fast-moving currents with zero visibility made that rescue challenging, according to the release. Divers freed the driver, 
transported the driver to Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis in critical condition. Our rescue declined further comment about the driver's condition. And there is a photo of tire tracks leading into the water at Bayview Street in West Yarmouth, where a driver ended up in a submerged car. Barnstable election ballot takes shape. Find out who's running by Heather McCarran. Barnstable's town election is shifting into high gear now that the deadline for filing nomination papers is passed and the ballot lineup has formally taken shape. On November 7th, all 13 town council seats are up for grabs. Also on the ballot are three school committee seats and two positions on the Housing Authority Board. There are 26 candidates in total who will appear on the ballot. And the polls on Election Day will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. So we will run down this, and uh, there's a long list here. <clears throat> I will remind people that if you miss any of this, you can always go to any of the information. You can always go to audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab, and hear it again. So who's running for town council? In Barnstable, seeking election to the town's top governing board are nine incumbents and ten newcomers. The incumbents who are on the ballot. Gordon Starr, Precinct 1. Eric Steinelber. Precinct 2, Betty Ludke, Precinct 3, Paul Cusack, Precinct 5, Paul Neary, Precinct 6, Jeffrey Mendez, Precinct 8, Matthew Levesque, Precinct 10, Christine Clark, Precinct 11, and Paula Schnepp, Precinct 12. The newcomers on the ballots, Paul Gage, Precinct 1, Kristen Turkelson, Precinct 2, Craig Tamash, Precinct 4. John Crow, Precinct 5. Seth Burdick, Precinct 7. Charlie Bloom, Precinct 9. Michael Messinas, Precinct 9. Toby Leary, Precinct 11. Kyle Condino, Precinct 12. And Felicia Penn, Precinct 13. Not on the ballot for re-election, Councillors Jennifer Cullum from Precinct 13 and Councillor Jessica Rapp Grissetti from Precinct 7 have termed out of their positions after 12 years. Also not on the ballot for re-election are Nicolas Atsalis, Precinct 4, and Jessica Rapp Grissetti, Precinct 7. In town council contests, eight town councillors are facing challenges for their seats on the board. Here are the contested races. In Precinct 1, incumbent Gordon Starr is challenged by Paul Gage. In Precinct 2, incumbent Eric Steinhilber is challenged by Kristen Turkelson. In Precinct 5, incumbent Paul Cusack is challenged by John Crow. In Precinct 9, Charlie Bloom and Michael Messinas are competing for this seat. Incumbent Tracy Chaunessy is not running. On, in Precinct 11, incumbent Christine Clark is challenged by Toby Leary. And in Precinct 12, incumbent Paula Schnepp is challenged by Kyle Condino. Who's running for school committee? There are no competitive races for the school board on the ballot with three candidates seeking election to three positions. Current Chairman Michael Judge, Vice Chairman Kathleen Bent are seeking re-election. The third candidates, Jennifer Cullum, 
who was presently representing Precinct 13 on the town council, but who was terming out of that position. Who's running for housing authority? The housing authority has two four-year commissioner terms available, but just one candidate will be on the ballot, incumbent Deborah Converse, who presently serves as treasurer. The other seat will be filled by a write-in candidate or an appointee if no write-in candidate or candidates step forward, according to the Barnstable Town Clerk's Office. Where is the election being held? Polling takes place in various locations according to precinct. And if you don't know which precinct you're in, you can visit a web address, sec, that's S-E-C dot state dot M-A dot U-S forward slash where do I vote M-A. Again, sec dot state dot M-A dot U-S forward slash where do I vote M-A. Following are the precinct by precinct voting locations. So if you know your precinct, this will tell you where you're going to vote. Precinct 1, Zion Union Church, 805 Attucks Lane, Hyannis. Precinct 2, St. George's Greek Orthodox Church, 1130 Falmouth Road in Centerville. Precinct 3, Barnstable Adult Center, 825 Falmouth Road in Hyannis. Precinct 4, Our Lady of Victory Hall, 230 South Main Street in Centerville. Precinct 5, Osterville Fire Station, 999 Main Street, Osterville. Precinct 6, Jim of Christ Chapel, 2C Oak Street, Centerville. Precinct 7, Freedom Hall, 976 Main Street, Ketuit. Precincts 8, 9, and 13, Hyannis Youth Center in Rink, 141 Bassett Lane in Hyannis. Precincts 10 and 12, Seventh-day Adventist Community Building, 2736 Falmouth Road, Marston's Mills. Precinct 11, West Barnstable Community Building, 2377 Meeting House Way in West Barnstable. Where can I find a ballot? When a sample ballot's ready, it'll be posted on the town clerk's webpage. The Times will be offering continuing coverage of the Barnstable town election in the coming days, including a deeper look at the candidates, which the Audible Local Ledger will be happy to read to you. From the Cape and Islands section, as we keep it local, the headline reads, Wetlands, Beach Drinking, and Dune Shacks, Seashore Head to Take New Job, by Denise Coffey in Wellfleet. Brian Carlstrom, who has served as superintendent for the Cape Cod National Seashore since April of 2018, will begin a new role as Deputy Regional Director of the Intermountain Region of the National Park Service on October 8th. Jennifer Flynn will take over as superintendent in mid-November. Flynn began her National Park Service career 32 years ago at the seashore. Carlstrom cited progress on the Herring River Wetlands Restoration Project, infrastructure, and roadway improvements, construction of wastewater systems, and beach access as some of the major accomplishments made in those years. He'll trade in oversight of 40 miles of beaches and 45,000 acres of marshes, ponds, and uplands for oversight of 45 national parks, according to Naman Horn, public affairs specialist with the Park Service. Carlstrom will be responsible for national parks in Montana, 
Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. Among the issues he'll need to focus on are land use management, which are pressing concerns around the Colorado River, and climate change, Horn said. It's a lot of territory, he said, stretching from Canada to Mexico. Helen Miranda Wilson has worked with Carlstrom on a number of issues as a former member of the Wellfleet Select Board and current Herring River Executive Council member. About 8,000 acres of the town lie within the seashore. Wilson likened the relationship between Wellfleet and the seashore to a marriage. The town has to interact with the park a lot, she said. We're legally bound to them. She cited Carlstrom's work on the Herring River Wetlands Restoration Project and mosquito problems at Duck Harbor. Carlstrom and Jeff Sanders, Chief of Natural Resource Management and Science at Cape Cod National Seashore, were professional and responsive given the complications of federal bureaucracy, she said. Janet Reinhardt, another former Wellfleet Select Board member and current Herring River Executive Council member, called Carlstrom open and available, saying he worked together with the Wellfleet Beach Department and stepped in to ease the problem with drinking and open containers of alcohol at Cahoon Hollow Beach. Wellfleet operates Cahoon Hollow Beach adjacent to seashore beaches. While the town had a no-alcohol policy, the seashore did not. Carlstrom adjusted the park's policies earlier this year to prohibit alcohol there because of increasing inappropriate and belligerent behavior. He worked well with Wellfleet Police, she said. He stepped in and he helped ease it. Richard Delaney, past chairman of the now dormant Cape Cod National Seashore Advisory Commission, has been nominated by the Secretary of the Department of the Interior to be chairman once the commission is reestablished. It was not reauthorized during the Trump administration, but was reauthorized months ago. It will begin work once all members are vetted, Delaney said. He called Karlstrom level-headed and a solid superintendent, saying he helped resolve jet ski issues in the park and the management of off-road vehicles on the beaches. He worked hard to understand Cape Cod issues, Delaney said. I think this opportunity was an unexpected, excellent opportunity to move up a little bit and move closer to family. A National Park Service request for proposals in May put Karlstrom at the center of a controversy. The request put eight dune shacks up for public bid. The shacks had been seasonally occupied and cared for by eight families for decades. Those families, their supporters, and town officials in Provincetown and Truro have fought the proposals, saying they should have been consulted. Delaney thinks, had the advisory commission been in place, it would have helped resolve some of the concerns about the park and dune shacks. McCarlstrom had no control over the reauthorization of the commission, he said. If it were in place now, it would be the perfect forum for the town's state and county representatives and the people they represent have a place to go to raise concerns about how that dune shack process was being handled. He said it would have been the ideal kind of situation. Karlstrom called it an honor to have been the seashore superintendent. It's been wonderful being part of the Cape Cod community and working with so many fantastic people, he said. The Cape Cod National Seashore Team has done an incredible job taking care of the seashore while protecting the natural, cultural resources that the seashore has to offer. The other story in the Cape and Islands section of today's Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, September 27th, more operating rooms to be added at Cape Hospital after a $5 million donation 
by Rashik Tabassum Mujib. Falmouth Hospital received a $5 million charitable donation last month to pay for construction of a new surgical suite. The donation from L. Ronald and Mark Catherine, Marquet, Capazzoli, will fund building the Capazzoli Surgical Suite at the hospital, according to the Cape Cod Healthcare Foundation. Our goal at Cape Cod Healthcare is to attract and retain the best clinicians to care for our community, and the Capazzoli Surgical Suite will make a profound difference in helping us achieve that goal, said Christopher Lawson, Senior Vice President, Chief Development Officer for Cape Cod Healthcare, in an email to the Times on Monday. Lawson worked directly with the Capazzoli family on the donation. The hospital currently has five operating rooms. With the new surgical unit, the hospital will have seven operating rooms, along with using the space previously occupied by the intensive care unit. The new surgical suite is expected to expand surgical services, offer quality technology and, and equipment, create additional access, and help recruit the best physicians and staff at the hospital. Construction will occur after a period of planning and after a new intensive care unit opens at the hospital in the fall. Cape Cod Healthcare, a nonprofit based in Hyannis, is the largest provider of healthcare services for residents and visitors of Cape Cod. It operates Falmouth Hospital in Falmouth and Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis, as well as other healthcare agencies. In 2021, Cape Cod Hospital received the largest donation in its history, a $10 million gift from the Edwin Barbie Charitable Trust, the fund which helped build a four-story building for cancer and cardiology services at the hospital. Peter Barbie and his wife, Pamela Barbie, of Hyannisport made the donation from the trust named after Pete's late father, Edwin Barbie. L. Ronald Capazzoli's father bought property in 1948 on Eel Pond at Menahant Beach in Falmouth. The family's owned a home there since then. The couple wanted to invest in Falmouth Hospital as a significant asset for the residents and visitors in Falmouth, according to Cape Cod Healthcare. This transformative gift from Ron and Marque Capazzoli demonstrates the positive impact of having a top-notch hospital in Falmouth, said Lawson. Keeping it local in the sports page, John Paul II beats Nossett for seventh straight win in high school field hockey by Courtney Jacobs. In 2020, the St. John Paul II athletics program in Hyannis introduced its first field hockey varsity team. In the inaugural season, the Lions played a junior varsity schedule, and since then they switched to a varsity schedule and made the playoffs both times, although they lost their first round matchups. This season, they started the season with a loss as Dennis Yarmouth beat them 3-0 at home. Since the season opener loss, they haven't been defeated. After we got out of a little of the nervousness, we kind of moved forward, JP2 head coach Megan Short said. We know we're strong enough to keep going, so that's what we're relying on. The Lions are 7-1 after a 1-0 win over Nauset on Monday, matching their win total, 7-3-4, from a season ago with 10 more games left in the regular season. It's safe to say the Lions are not Cubs anymore and they're roaring loud enough for the entire Cape. The girls have been playing together for a long time, just about four years together, so they know each other well. I'm super proud of them. They're really gelling as a team, Coach Short said. A lot of team gelling doesn't happen just on the field. 
which reminds Coach Short of when she played field hockey at Dennis Yarmouth Regional High. She said there's been a lot of team building and that the players even enjoy the bus rides to games, which Short said was the best part of when she was a player. Even the small things, like playing their home games on Barnstable High Field, shows how the Lions don't take anything for granted. Playing there, Barnstable Field, the girls feel validated. They feel like they're an important part of the school, and they represent JP2 really well, Coach Short said. Short said tri-captains Kaylee Anthony, Maeve, Maeve Short, her daughter, and Shay Ryan have been a big part of the reason for the recent success. In Monday's win, two of the captains were the difference makers in the victory. With the score being 0-0 at halftime, the Lions needed somebody to step up to continue their win streak. In the third quarter, Anthony passed the ball to Maeve in front of the net, and she put the, ball, she put the goal in the bottom right corner for the only score of the game. The captains were able to take control, Anthony said. The Lions are making history with their best varsity start in program history, and they're starting to realize the potential of what they can do this season. It's really exciting because we grew this program. We started off as a tiny team. We didn't even have a varsity or JV, Maeve Short said. Now when we go to play games, people don't expect us to lose. Seven straight wins is no easy feat, and the Lions are only halfway through the regular season. They know that there's still work to be done, and player Short feels that starts with conditioning. A lot of us play for the whole game because we have such a small team, even though it's grown so much, Maeve said. I feel like as long as we focus more on that, we can go through the whole game without getting tired and supporting the rest of our teammates on the field. Good luck to JP2 and their field hockey team. We're at the midway portion of our reading. Regular listeners are well aware, I'm sure. So at this stage, we move to a different kind of local news. We move to the obituaries, the death notices, and any kind of memorials. There are three obituaries in today's Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, September 27th of 2023. The first is of Marlene J. Mijos, known as Tootsie, caring wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, sister, godmother, and friend, who passed away Thursday, September 21st, peacefully at the age of 92. Marlene, beloved wife of the late James Jim C. Mijos, was born on March 7, 1931, and grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, graduating from Rogers High School in 1949. She worked at her family's restaurant, Star Lunch, on Broadway in Newport until she met her husband, Jim. Together, they built a home and life in Brockton, where they raised four children. Marlene worked alongside Jim, her brother-in-law, Peter, and his wife, Marie, in Brockton and beyond as they grew their family-owned chain of grocery and convenience stores known as Christie's Markets. Together, the foursome had a strong work ethic learned from their parents, who all came to America from Greece. Marlene was a communicant of the St. Spiridon Greek Orthodox Church in Newport, Rhode Island in her youth, and later at the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church in Brockton. In addition to the stores and the couple's various business ventures, Jim and Marlene gave wholeheartedly their time and energy to the building of the Annunciation Greek Church on Oak Street in Brockton. Affectionately known as Yaya, Tootsie, and Ma by those who loved her, Marlene cherished making memories with her family and friends while gathered around her kitchen table and during conversations had with coffee and Greek pastries. 
Her kindness and devotion spread well beyond her family, and her warm-hearted, selfless nature was ever-present to all that had the pleasure to know her. Marlene had a special gift as a listener and caregiver, spending her life helping many in their time of need and welcoming all with open arms. Calling hours in the Russell and Pika Funeral Home, 165 Belmont Street in Brockton, on Thursday, September 28th, from 4 to 7 p.m. Funeral services will be held in the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church at 457 Oak Street in Brockton on Friday at 11 a.m. Interment will follow in Melrose Cemetery in Brockton. In lieu of flowers, any donations may be made to the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church, 457 Oak Street in Brockton. The next obituary is of Brenda D. Hegarty of Yarmouthport. With profound sadness, we announce the passing of Brenda D. Hegarty, 81, of Yarmouthport, on September 24, 2023. Brenda was born September 20, 1942, in Arlington, Mass. She spent her early years in Carlisle, Maine, before moving to Pembroke, New Hampshire, where her family purchased and ran a large farm, and her lifelong love of the outdoors and nature began. Brenda graduated from Pembroke Academy and soon began her long and successful career in retail accounting, which culminated in her co-founding Holiday's Hallmark stores in Boston and Cape Cod with her husband Jim, where she was the comptroller. They enjoyed running the business together for 28 years. Brenda and Jim recently celebrated 50 years of joyful marriage, loving partnership, mutual support, and life together on Cape Cod. In retirement, they traveled the world extensively, including yearly visits to her cherished St. Martin, and golfed extensively with treasured friends at Cumaquid Golf Club, highlighted by her hole-in-one at Woods Hole Golf Club. She loved to bake, knit, and spend hours gardening, but most of all, her favorite time were outdoors at her many beloved beaches on the Cape with Jim, her family, and friends. Her smile could not only light up a room but an entire oceanfront. Family and friends are invited to pay their respects at the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, Morris O'Connor Chapel, 58 Long Pond Drive in Yarmouth, on Friday, September 29th, between 1 and 3 p.m. A celebration of her life will follow. The burial will be held privately. In lieu of flowers, any donations may be made in memory of Brenda Hegarty to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Attention, Rosa Mayorga, Division of Philanthropy, 10 Brookline Place, Brookline, Mass., or to Cape Cod Healthcare Foundation, 32 Main Street in Hyannis, Mass. The next obituary is of Sean J. Pierce of Mashpee, who at the age of 50 passed on September 23rd. He was beloved husband of Adriana Pierce and graduated from Falmouth High School where he developed his love for football. After high school, he attended Dean Junior College in Franklin, Mass., where his football team won a national championship. Following his, following his time at Dean, he attended Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, pursued an undergrad degree in criminal justice, and additionally played on their Division I football team. After college, he worked as a stockbroker for Morgan Stanley at the World Trade Center Twin Towers in New York, 9-11 ultimately causing him to return home. For some time, he worked for Novartis Pharmaceuticals after moving back to Cape Cod. He was recently working for himself as a financial advisor, 
member of the Knights of Columbus, and a beloved coach for Falmouth Youth and Upper Cape Spartans football programs on Cape Cod. To Sean, his work with kids was the most important work he did, and it meant the world to him. He was an avid New England Patriots and Notre Dame fan. He loved watching games on Sundays after church with lifelong friends. Most of all, he cherished spending time with his children and family. He was a loving husband, father, and brother, and will be dearly missed by all who loved and knew him. He is survived by his loving wife, Adriana, and his parents, Joseph and Anne, and many others who will miss him dearly. A visitation will be held at Christ the King Church, 5 Job's Fishing Road in Mashpee, on Friday, October 6th, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. A funeral mass will follow at 12 p.m. at Christ the King Church, and burial will follow in St. Anthony's Cemetery in East Falmouth. Following the burial, there'll be a memorial reception at the Falmouth Elks Lodge at 140 Palmer Ave in Falmouth from 2 to 6 p.m. And that concludes the obituaries and death notices that are listed in the Cape Cod Times dated Wednesday, September 27th of 2023. Continuing with the local side of the Cape Cod Times, uh, the only thing local that's left is the high school roundup in sports. Monday's Cape Cod Scores and Highlights by Courtney Jacobs. The Bourne Canal women swept Somerset Berkeley 25-11, 25-17, and 25-8 to win their eighth straight match and remain unbeaten on the season on Monday. Their, meaning Somerset, defense was sensational, and they played with a lot of heart, Bourne head coach David Moore said. Leading the team were setters Elena Timo, who's a senior with 14 assists, 7 kills, 8 digs, and Sophia Hallonen, who's a sophomore with 12 assists, 7 kills, and 9 digs. Libero Lily Russell, who's a sophomore, finished with 11 digs and 8 aces, while Nola Timo, who's a sophomore, added 3 aces, 15 digs, and 5 kills. Mela Muldoon, who's a sophomore, and Carly May, who's a junior, combined for 9 kills and 11 digs. We do not have to rely on a couple of players for our scoring, and we're fortunate to be able to have strength in all positions, Moore said. Tonight's win was a solid team effort, registering 58 digs from our defense and holding our opponents to 6 kills on the night. If you didn't know what I was just talking about, that is high school volleyball. With more girls volleyball, St. John Paul II, 3, Rising Tide, 0. The Lions, who are 6-2, won in straight sets, 25-20, 25-13, and 25-11. Rosanna Sullivan had 11 aces, 5 kills, and 7 digs, while Caitlin McGrail added 6 aces, 3 kills, and 6 digs. Zlata Alyoshka had an all-around good game with 2 aces, 3 kills, 12 assists, and 6 digs, while Molly Pulet contributed 10 digs. Barnstable 3, Falmouth 0. The Red Hawks, who are 6-2, swept the Clippers, who were 3-4, in straight sets, 26-9, 25-17, and 25-15, in the Dig Yellow Night, in honor of Olivia Brot of 2016 and Childhood Cancer Awareness. The offense was led by Molly Frito with 12 kills, Charlotte Sullivan added 6 kills, and Molly Gleason finished with 8 kills, 9 digs, and 2 aces. Sadie Wellbeloved chipped in 24 assists. Senior Delia Rulston led the back row with 9 digs, and junior Maggie McLean had 3 blocks and 5 kills for Falmouth. 
It was Dennis Yarmouth 3 and Danvers 2. After trailing 2-1, to the Dolphins, who were 4-4, four four, won a tough five-set match. 25-22, Vivian Castano had 24 assists and 4 kills, and Megan Burlingame added 8 aces and 15 digs. Mariah Eaton finished with 14 kills and 2 blocks, while Ellen Swanson contributed 37 digs and 2 aces. It was Blue Hills 3, Upper Cape 0. The Rams, who were 0-7, had, had season highs in service points, volleys, and digs in their loss. Seniors Ava Courier and Emma King, juniors Ella Kerrigan and Miranda Solomon, and sophomores Nigella Johnson and Nadia Prunier played well. Sturgis East 3, Monomoy 1. The Storm, who are 2-2, two two, beat the Sharks, who are 0-7, in four sets. 25-12, 25-18, 22-25, and 25-8. Brooke Bouchard had 14 consecutive service points, and middle hitter Sophia Palazza had a good net play for Sturgis East. Sophomore Callie Squire, London Caron, and Emmy Porter contributed in the win. In boys' golf, it was Monomoy 275, Sturgis East 340. Jackson Rocco and Braden Burke each shot a 45 to lead the Sharks, who were 4 and 1, to the win over the Storm, who were 0 and 6. Hank Brown shot a 44, Casey Hughes shot a 45, and Christian Whittle shot a 45, and Aiden Stone with a 55 rounded out the top six. Matt D'Antonio led the way with a 54 for Sturgis East. In field hockey, it was St. John Paul II, 1, Nauset 0, as you heard in the earlier story before the obituaries. It was Barnstable 4, Notre Dame Academy from Hingham, 2. Senior Ali McEnany had two goals and two assists for the Red Hawks, who were 4-1-1 in the win. Senior captain Alexa Garte had one goal and one assist, while senior Sidney Thomas chipped in one goal. Senior goalie Maley Responte finished with 15 saves in three quarters, including a stroke in the second quarter. Seniors Ruby Coleman and Bridget Bedencope played well on defense. It was Falmouth 3, Cohasset 2. Avery Johnson scored the winner for the Clippers, who are 2-2-1, with two minutes remaining. Johnson scored another goal before that, and McKenna Metcalf scored the first goal. And it was Sandwich 6, Middleborough 0. Chloe Schultz finished with a hat trick for the Blue Knights in field hockey, who are 7-0 as they win their seventh straight and remain unbeaten. Julia Gempietro had one goal and one assist, and Quinn Jordan and Elizabeth Stutzman each finished with one goal. Monomoy 9, Plymouth North 1. The Sharks, who were 4-0-1 on the season, remain undefeated. In boys' soccer, it was Falmouth Academy 2, Cape Tech 1. Mark Chikave scored twice in the first 15 minutes of the game for the Mariners, who were 3-2 in their win. Chikave's second goal was assisted by Gabe Murray, while Christian Hanoyan and Ezra Ackerman played well on defense. After conceding two early goals, Jace Clady scored for the Crusaders, who were 2-3-2, in the 30th minute of the game. It was Somerset Berkeley 3 and Bourne 0 in boys soccer. The Canalmen lost on the road and fall to 1-4-2 on the season. Goalkeeper Nate Reynolds had five saves. Defender Sean Kelly finished with four block shots and eight clearouts. And midfielder Leo Andrade played well. Quinn Moriarty and Mike Dankert each had two shots each on goal. In girls soccer, it was Falmouth Academy 5, Cape Tech 0. 
Faye McGuire and Talia O'Neill led the Mariners, who were 2-3 and three, with two goals each, while Susanna Lowell added a goal. The Crusaders fall to 0-6. And, and finally, it's St. John Paul II, 7 Boston Latin Academy won. Addison Shaney led the way for the Lions in girls' soccer, who are 3-2-1, with four goals, while Ella Shaney added one goal and three assists. Michaela Enright and Cassidy Conway rounded out the scoring with a goal each, while Reagan Dillon, Marlo Jumper, and Enright each added an assist. Devin Crawford and Maya Dalrymple played well on defense. And that concludes all the local news that is in Today's Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, September 27th of 2023. We don't normally do that much sports, but it is high season for high school sports. So lots of that, and it is local, and you can probably hear much of the national and international news in other commercial sources. Our goal at the Audible Local Ledger is to make sure that you know what's going on in your community that you know about the people who may have passed, what might have passed in a different way at town uh, meeting, and what's going on with wastewater, the environment, etc. in your community. That's why we really exhaust our local news coverage before moving on to regional or national. Congress, moving into crisis mode. Speaking in, of moving into a different mode, here we are, moving into the national. Time runs short as GOP hardliners wield power. By Lisa Mascaro and Stephen Groves of the Associated Press in Washington. With a government shutdown five days away, Congress is moving into crisis mode as Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces an insurgency from hard-right Republicans eager to slash spending, even if it means curtailing federal services for millions of Americans. There's no clear path ahead as lawmakers return with tensions high and options limited. The House was expected to vote Tuesday evening on a package of bills to fund parts of the government, but it's not at all clear that McCarthy has the support needed to move ahead. Meanwhile, the Senate, trying to stave off a federal closure, is preparing its own bipartisan plan for a stopgap measure to buy some time and keep offices funded past Saturday's deadline as work in Congress continues. But plans to tack on additional Ukraine aid have run into trouble as a number of Republicans in both the House and the Senate oppose spending more money on the war effort. Against the mounting chaos, President Joe Biden warned the Republican conservatives off their hardline tactics, saying that funding the federal government is one of the most basic fundamental responsibilities of Congress. Biden implored the House Republicans not to renege on the debt deal he struck earlier this year with McCarthy, which set the federal government funding levels, and it was signed into law after approval by both the House and the Senate. We made a deal. We shook hands. We said this is what we're going to do. And now they're reneging on the deal, Biden said late Monday. If Republicans in the House don't start doing their jobs, we should stop electing them. A government shutdown would disrupt the U.S. economy and the lives of millions of Americans who work for the government or rely on federal services. From air traffic controllers who'd be asked to work without pay to some 7 million people in the Women, Infants, and Children program, including half the babies born in the U.S. who could lose access to nutritional benefits, according to the White House. It comes against the backdrop of the 2024 elections as Donald Trump, the leading Republican to challenge Biden, is egging on the Republicans in Congress to shut it down, 
and undo the deal McCarthy made with Biden. Republicans are also being encouraged by former Trump officials, including those who are preparing to slash government and the federal workforce if the former president retakes the White House in the 2024 election. With five days to go before Saturday's deadline, the turmoil's unfolding as House Republicans hold their first Biden impeachment inquiry hearing this week, probing the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden. Unless you get everything, shut it down, Trump wrote in all capital letters on social media. It's time Republicans learned how to fight. McCarthy arrived at the Capitol early Monday after a tumultuous week in which a handful of hard-right Republicans torpedoed his latest plans to advance a usually popular defense funding bill. They brought the chamber to a standstill, and leaders sent lawmakers home for the weekend with no endgame in sight. After the House Rules Committee met Saturday to prepare for this week's voting, McCarthy was hopeful the latest plan on a package of four bills to fund defense, homeland security, agriculture, and state and foreign operations would kickstart the process. Let's get this going, McCarthy said. Let's make sure the government stays open while we finish our job passing all the individual bills. But at least one top Trump ally... Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia, who's also close to McCarthy, said she would be a hard no on the vote to open debate, known as the rule, because the package of bills contains to provide at least $300 million for the war in Ukraine. Other hard-right conservatives and allies of Trump may follow her lead. Now you have a couple of new people thinking about voting against the rule, said Representative Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado referring to the upcoming procedural vote. Once a holdout himself, Buck told reporters at the Capitol he'd be voting for the package. But he's not sure McCarthy will have enough for passage. I don't know if he gets them back on board or not, Buck said. While their numbers are just a handful, the hard-right Republican faction holds considerable sway because the House majority is narrow. And McCarthy needs almost every vote from his side for partisan bills without Democratic support. The Speaker has given the holdouts many of their demands, but it still hasn't been enough as they press for more, including gutting fight funding for Ukraine, which President Vladimir Zelensky told Washington last week is vital to winning the war against Russia. The hardline Republicans want McCarthy to drop the deal he made with Biden and stick to earlier promises for spending cuts he made to them in January to win their votes for the Speaker's gavel, citing the nation's rising debt load. Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida, a key Trump ally leading the right flank, said on Fox that a shutdown is not optimal, but it's better than continuing on the current path that we're on to America's financial ruin. Gates, who's also threatened to call a vote to oust McCarthy from his job, wants Congress to do what it rarely does anymore, debate and approve each of the 12 annual bills needed to fund the various departments of government typically a process that takes weeks, if not months. Even if the House is able to complete its work this week on some of those bills, which is highly uncertain, they would still need to be merged with similar legislation from the Senate, which is another lengthy process. Meantime, senators have been drafting a temporary measure, called a Continuing Resolution or a CR, to keep government funded past Saturday they've run into trouble trying to tack on Biden's request for supplemental funding for Ukraine. They face resistance from a handful of Republicans to the war effort. 
A Senate aide said talks would continue through the night. The other national story that is on the cover of today's Cape Cod Times of September 27th, Justices Clear Way for Second Black Alabama District by John Fritzie in Washington. The Supreme Court has sided with a group of voters in Alabama who are challenging the way the state drew its congressional districts. The latest development in a case with national implications for black voting power and potentially control of Congress. In a one-sentence order Tuesday, the justices rejected a request from Alabama to block a lower court ruling that found the state's districts violated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The lower court also appointed an expert to draw a new map, responsibility usually left to state legislatures. Though not unexpected, the Supreme Court's decision was a victory for voting rights groups who note Alabama's map included only one majority black district out of seven, even though African Americans make up 27% of the state's population. There were no noted dissents. It's been a long and frustrating battle, holding the Alabama legislature accountable, but today it is a rewarding one. The plaintiffs in the case, who are represented by the Legal Defense Fund, the American Civil Liberties Union, and others, said in a joint statement. We look forward to a new era in our state's history in which power is shared and black voices are heard. A spokesperson for Alabama's attorney general did not immediately respond to a request for comment. While limited to Alabama, the case will have ramifications in other states, especially in the South, and could give Democrats an advantage in next year's election. That's because the Alabama case will influence similar litigation over maps in Louisiana, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and other states where the interplay between race, politics, and redistricting has been fraught for decades. Every decade, states redraw the boundaries of their congressional districts to account for population changes. It's a technical and, in most states, highly political process in which lawmakers try to eke out an advantage by drawing safe, quote-unquote, districts for their party. The Supreme Court has ruled that federal courts won't get involved in messy disputes over partisan line drawing. But racial gerrymanders are another matter. In their pursuit of political advantage, state lawmakers can't try to disadvantage minority voters by packing them all into a single district or cracking their communities into multiple districts to reduce their power. In Alabama, a three-judge panel last year said that's likely what happened when the state drew its map after the 2020 census. The court said it didn't even regard the question of whether the maps violated the law as a close one. Two of the three judges in the case were appointed by former President Donald Trump. Perhaps underscoring the wider significance of the case, Alabama's maps have repeatedly showed up at the nation's highest court. In June, a 5-4 majority rejected Alabama's argument that what it described as a race-blind quote-unquote, approach to drawing congressional districts was permitted under the Voting Rights Act. Chief Justice John Roberts described a nuanced approach in which states shouldn't let race be the primary factor in deciding how to draw boundaries, but it should be considered. The line that we have drawn is between consciousness and predominance, he wrote. Alabama lawmakers quickly drew another map. But the second version also included only a single district where black voters made up a majority, or something close to it. The state said its new map resolved the matter, but the lower court again struck it down. 
The state relied in part on a concurring opinion from Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who joined the 5-4 majority in June, but who expressed some reservations. Even if Congress has the power to authorize race-based redistricting, Kavanaugh wrote in June, that power cannot extend indefinitely into the future. After losing at the lower court a second time, Alabama asked the Supreme Court this month to step in to block that lower court's ruling. And for all you politicos who enjoy the debates uh, that take place in our presidential campaigns, in the nation and world, seven set to take part in second GOP debate. Who's in and who's out for Wednesday night's event by Meg Kennard. The field for the second Republican presidential debate will be smaller than the first. Seven candidates have qualified for Wednesday night's debate at Ronald Reagan's presidential library in California, the Republican National Committee said, confirming that former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson didn't make the cut this time. Former President Donald Trump, the early Republican presidential frontrunner who skipped the first debate, will also be missing from the stage and will instead hold events in the battleground state of Michigan. To qualify for the second debate, candidates needed at least 3% support in two national polls, or 3% in one national poll, as well as two polls from four of the early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. The White House hopefuls also needed at least 50,000 unique donors, with at least 200 of those coming from 20 states or territories. They also had to sign an RNC pledge promising to support the party's eventual nominee. So here's a look at where the candidates stand. Who is in? Ron DeSantis. The Florida governor has been seen as the top rival for Trump, finishing a distant second in the current GOP frontrunner in both early voting state and national polls, but raising an impressive amount of money. Those sands have begun to shift as DeSantis's effort has struggled to live up to the high expectations for his campaign. Republican support for him nationally has slipped substantially from its high point earlier this year. Tim Scott. The senator from South Carolina didn't have a breakout moment in the first debate in Milwaukee and is hoping to change that during Wednesday's event. Nikki Haley, the only Republican woman on stage and in the field. Haley experienced a fundraising bounce after her performance in the first debate. Her campaign said she raised at least a million dollars in 72 hours, which is a record period for her. Vivek Ramaswamy. The political newcomer scored several memorable moments at the first debate, criticizing some rivals as super PAC puppets who were using ready-made prepared slogans to attack him. He was a frequent target of incoming attacks on his lack of experience. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, opened his campaign by portraying himself as the only candidate ready to take on Trump, calling on the former president to show up at the debates and defend his record. Doug Burgum. Burgum, a former software entrepreneur now in his second term as North Dakota's governor, nearly missed the first debate due to a tendon injury sustained while playing basketball with his campaign staff, but he still participated, telling reporters afterward he stood on one leg behind the podium. Mike Pence, campaigning on his reputation as a statesman and experienced elected official, Trump's vice president showed off his debate chops last month. He's angling to see more action in California. Who decided not to participate again? Donald Trump. He'll give a speech shortly before his rivals take the stage in California. And who made it last time, but not this time? Asa Hutchinson, the former two-term Arkansas governor, final candidate to meet the RNC's qualification for the first debate, posted pleas on Twitter 
for a $1 donations to help secure his slot, but he didn't meet the heightened criteria to participate in the second. And with that, we've come to the end of our reading of today's Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, September 27th of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Bye for now.